buddies, fellow Franco fans, fans of Uncle Jess, it is I, your host, Jason Rudy, from Desperate Visions Productions, a Sacramento, California-based filmmaking group, uh, doing editing on Lady Hyde and Emmanuel in Sin City, coming 2022 next year. Money is a good thing, and uh, with money, you can do things, and Uncle Jess knew about that because uh, he likes having a party, so we like having a party, too. And uh, this being episode 66, film 66, is Midnight Party, uh, is the export title, and that is uh, made in 1975, country of origin, France, Belgium, and West Germany. Um, Original theatrical title in the country of origin is Midnight Party, France, and in West German it's Hot Touch, which is uh, Heisbrunn. See, what is this here? Heis Brunhagen, uh, also Belgian theatrical title unknown. Alternative titles, Italian theatrical, uh, The Cuddly One, La Coccolona. And uh, we have French alternative theatrical title listed is uh, Minute Apertos. And then we have uh, Lady Porno, uh, Spanish theatrical. I've seen a lot of Lady Porno shirts and different things. That's uh, the image of the lady... Uh, with like a lipstick, putting on lipstick, looking forward uh, with the dark hair. They use that image a lot for um, like uh, t-shirts and that I'll see on, online. So that's from that film. Uh, so yeah, Lady Porno's Midnight Party. Uh, and then we also have French is uh, the Midnight Orgy. Um, La Passeur de Minute. De minute. Uh, we have uh, Porno Dama. U.S. Unicorn Video release. All right, Unicorn Video. Yeah, that's an old school fucking big box VHS there. Uh, and we have Porno Pop, free pre-filming title, unused export title. Porno Pop, okay. So I think I've seen that one too. Lady Porno and Porno Pop, images of that. Uh, and Minute Party and Porno Pop, one of Franco's scripts outline. And then, uh, so yeah, I have that one. And then Sylvia the Horny Girl. And uh, let's see, okay, so, <clears throat> production company, Erosine, out of Paris, uh, Brew Inner Films, out of Brussels, uh, production company, German print, is Cinemic Production, out of Berlin, and uh, production company, Spanish print, Titanic Film, Spain, and Belgium Film, out of Belgium, theatrical distributors, Erosine, of course, of Paris, um, Avis Escott, of West Germany, Prestige Films, again, out of Italy, and then American European Films of Spain. And once again, we get our books, uh, information from the uh, Volume 2 book by Stephen Thrower, Flowers of Perversion. Yeah, Murderous Passions and Flowers of Perversion. This is Volume 2. Uh, so we have shooting date on this, um, April, May of 1975, he has, and came out in Germany. Uh, following that, January 23rd of 1976, and then Naples, September 17th of 76, and then uh, Vigarvano, Italy, November 9th, 76, Rome, February 8th of 77, French visa issued January 11th, 77, French premiere, June 28th, 1977, Played Paris, uh, December 7th, 1977, and looks like finally Nancy in France, January 4th, 1978. Um, so, yeah, oh, actually, there's more showings. Uh, Seville, January 20th, uh, 1983. Uh, January 24th, 1983, played Barcelona, and finally played Madrid, uh, August 22nd, 1983. Uh, theatrical running time, France, uh, 65 minutes. Germany, looking at uh, 69.29. Video and DVD running time, complete, or converted as Midnight Party, uh, 93 minutes. The... Uh, Heisbruggenhorgen, German DVD of it, is 75. That's interesting. And then Le, Le Coccolona, uh, the Italian VHS, is 78 minutes. Hmm. 
says. That's interesting. It must be an X certificate. A longer version is shown in porn cinemas. Hmm. All right. Uh, director on this is, of course, Jess Franco. And this one he's billed as... Um, oh, wow. He has a bunch of different names on this one. Cool. So these are many aliases according to country. So he's in the French print. He's billed as James... Gardner, not James Gardner from the Rockford Files, but uh, Gardner, J-R-D-N-E-R, like a gardener. Um, and then in the German one, he's Manfred Greger, which he's used that alias before. In Spanish, he's Tower Nero, nice, T-A-W-E-R, Nero, Spain. Uh, writer, Nicole Gutierrez as Nadine Foucault, actually Jess Franco, interesting. So yeah, he was Nicole Guitard as well. Yeah, I think he's used that that female name in past credits as well. Uh, dialogue adaptation: P.C. Garnier, H.L. Rostein, uh, producer Marius Lesur, director of photography Gerard Bessard, actually Jess Franco. So he has another credit, Gerard. So God, he's so many credits on this one. Wow. Um, camera operator Jess Franco, cool. And Ramona did, of course. Uh, music, Daniel J. White, published by Carousel. Uh, lyrics, song of Le Vie, Le Un Merede. Lyrics by Jess Franco. Music, Alan Petit. Uh, camera assistant, Philip Vendelay. Assistant director, Pierre Caston. In this case, probably Gerald Cassell. Editor, Yosine Belair. Actually, Jess Franco. Uh, set manager Madeline Quindequand Quindequandon. Actually, I think he's used that hmm, that last name before as well. But anyway, uh, continuity Nicole Guitard Laboratories. Okay, blah blah blah. All right, um, cast on this. Let's see, Lena Romay as Sylvia Sanders, a stripper. Laura in the Spanish version. Olivier Mathot plays Alphonse. Al Gathier, private eye slash CIA operative. Alan Petit as Charlie Christian or Red Nicholas. Uh, Jerry Columbus in the Spanish press. Okay, uh, Sylvia's guitarist boyfriend. Jess Franco plays Janos Raddick, Agent 008. Now, see, he's better than 007 because James Bond's 007, but he's better. He's 008. What's one better than James Bond? Or, or MF, Agent 0010, that's three better, alias Durand, Vicayas in Spanish. Okay. Uh, Ramon Ardid plays Radic's male... Oh, okay, I didn't even catch that. Janos Radic, yeah, Radic. Radic's his familiar last name he uses all the time uh, from the sod. Um, Okay, uh, where were we at? Sorry. Uh, Ramon Ardez, Radix, male assistant, uh, Carlo in Spanish version. Monica Swim is Marth, Radix, female assistant. Claude Busson as Yul Saunders, plays Joe DeLogia. Evelyn Scott plays Miss Fang. Uh, Pierre Tellu plays Pierre, Sylvia's husband. Madeline Quinn. Quiquandon plays Madeline, the barmaid. Okay, so it's actually the real gal. Uh, Gerald Casal, mustache man at bar. Ilon Kunsova, women sitting opposite Quinn Quandon at the bar. Nicole Guitard, woman in dark glasses at the club. And Italian poster ads, Isabella Gargano. So yeah, so it's cool. You see a lot of the people that are on the crew and that you'll see in this film. I have yet to watch this, so I'm just doing this first. Um, notes, La Cocolona adds Alice Arno and Angelo Bassi to the cast list, although neither in the film. The Spanish press book adds Nadine Forcard as Marta, and the unfortunately named C.L. Fartier <coughs> as Daniel. Uh, the Italian poster adds another mystery cast member, Lana Gray. Franco's notes for the film indicate that he was toying with crediting Romay under the pseudonym Sylvia Sanders, Presumably to tie in with the fact that she's called Sylvia in the story. She is after supposedly playing herself. All right. Uh, production notes. Um, of all the films Jess Franco made in the 1970s, probably the most difficult to get to the bottom of is 1975's Midnight Party. 
Over the years, it has been the subject of numerous contradictory assertions regarding its genesis and financial backing, a chaotic state of affairs which reflects Franco's cavalier business habits during the mid-1970s. The players in the saga are just Franco himself, the French production company Eurocene, specifically Marius and Daniel Lesseur, and the Swiss producer Erwin C. Dietrich. And if incorrect statements have been made over the years, as I believe they have, the reason was most likely to avoid bad blood between people who needed to maintain at least the semblance of a working relationship. The first thing we must do is establish a production date. Alan Petit was closely involved with Franco during 1974 to 1975. He was the male lead in Julieta 69 and took another featured role in Midnight Party. In his magazine, The Manicoa Files, Petit recalled, Toward the end of April 1975, Jess called me to Montpellier, where he was filming Midnight Party on behalf of Eurocene. Upon my arrival at the location, I was introduced to Evelyn Scott, Yule Saunders, Olivier Mathot. Yule Saunders confessed his total confusion. He did not understand the film and had, over the past few days, enacted twice in two very different ways the death of his character. Just pulled me into a corner with a knowing smile and told me, To you I can say, I am doing two movies, I had already guessed. We can safely say, therefore, that Midnight Party went before the cameras in late 18th 1975. Note that Petit clearly states Midnight Party was made for Eurocene, which I'm sure is going to be a point to remember. Um, many sor- most sources, therefore, take the simple route and attribute Midnight Party to Eurocene and the Belgian and their Belgian associates, Brooks Interfilms as indicated by the credits on the French and English language versions. The most compelling reason to do so is that Midnight Party features a host of Eurocene regulars. Pierre Tellou, Olivier Method, Claude Besson, a.k.a. Yul Saunders, and Evelyn Scott are heavily featured in the cast, while Eurocene crew members Madeleine Quiquandon and Elona Kunisova appear in background roles. No other production house would employ so many Eurocene actors, much less have members of the Eurocene production team appearing as extras. The scenes featuring Pierre Tellou as a feckless house husband were even filmed at the Lesseur family home. Elsewhere in the Manicoa Files, however, Franco had a different tale to tell, one which did not refer to Eurocene, but instead cited Swiss director-slash-producer Erwin C. Dietrich, with whom Franco worked for three years from 1975 to 1977. And on a side note, we covered all of the Jess Franco and Erwin C. Dietrich films in the earlier episodes, so check them all out. All right, back to text. When asked how he first met the Swiss sex film mogul, Franco replied, I met Dietrich through Maria Grazia, a Swiss woman who had a production company in Italy, married to a very nice Italian guy. I met them in Rome. They were both jazz fans. They wanted to work with me, and we came up with the idea for Shining Sex and Midnight Party. We needed a certain sum of money, and they didn't have it at all. Maria Grazia had been the girlfriend of a former associate of Dietrich's, and they had stayed friends, so they convinced Dietrich to participate. The woman in question, although Franco couldn't remember her surname, is Maria Grazia Frigerio. She is hard to trace through film credits alone, having worked chiefly in a business and finance capacity. Her sole credit on IMDb lists her as production manager on the 1988 Dietrich production Der Commander. It is, however, safe to assume that she's the same woman mentioned by Dietrich in the following quote from an interview conducted by Chris Alexander in 2016. To sell our movies in the Italian market, together with my director of photography and associate Peter Baumgartner, I founded the distribution company Prestige Films, SRL, in in Rome. Bruno Mattai was in charge of the dubbing. Jess Franco called our Italian CEO, Gracia Frigerio, and sold her his new movie, Porno Pop, Midnight Party, with Lena Romay. We brought it into we brought it onto the big screen entitled Hebe Beer Garden and it was quite a success. 
Note the important difference here between Franco and Dietrich's account. Franco, they, Prestige, wanted to work with me, and we came up with the idea for Shining Sex Midnight Party. Dietrich, Jess Franco called Prestige CEO Gracia Vergera and sold his new movie, Midnight Party. In Franco's version of the events, he conceived the project with Fragerio Prestige and then went away and made it, while in Dietrich's account, the film was sold to Prestige as finished. Legal documentation from the Elite Archive points to a deal being struck in September 75 when the film was being referred to as Porno Pop, presumably the shooting title. One of these statements is incorrect, and I'm inclined to give Dietrich the benefit of the doubt. Dietrich said that Jess Franco personally sold the film to Frigerio, which suggests that he was treating Midnight Party as if it were a Manicoa project, Manicoa being Franco's own production company, something which cannot have pleased Eurocene. Franco's cavalier approach to the rights for his film would emerge again more problematically in relation to his first official Dietrich production, Bard Wire Dolls. Yeah, definitely, he had that problem with Dietrich coming up later on, and uh, we talked about all that, and he definitely does a lot of double-dealing and stuff on the side, so that's one of his bad things. Uh, in January 70, 1976, Dietrich released Midnight Party in Switzerland and West Germany as Heiss Berngarten. This was its first release anywhere in the world. The poster was headed Urban C. Dietrich Presents and a Cinemec production for Avis Ascot Film Rentals, both of which were Dietrich-owned companies. There were no mention of any of the other production there were no mention of any other production company, and Lena Romay was the only cast member listed. The Eurocene performers were omitted from Heiss Berhrogen's screen credits, too. Only members of the Franco family, Lena Romay, Monica Swim, and Ramon Ardid, were listed. If it's true that Franco sold the film to Dietrich from under Eurocene's noses, these extremely partial credits suggest a conscious effort to conceal the French origins of the project. If Midnight Party had genuinely started out as an Italian, Swiss, or German production, you would expect at least a couple of the Italian, Swiss, or German actors in the cast. There are none. The performers are either French or Spanish. Again, this gives credence to Dietrich's account, not Franco's, because if the film was simply purchased for a German-Swiss distribution, there was no need to pad out the cast with bogus German names. This was sometimes done by distributors, by distributors dishonestly to imply co-production with another company or country for tax reasons, but it does not appear to have been Dietrich's modus operandi. When Midnight Party <clears throat> was next released in Italy in September 1976, much had changed. It was retitled La Cocolona, and the theatrical poster announced distribution by the Dietrich Fergerio Company Prestige Films. The poster was the poster also reinstated two Eurocene cast members, Yul Saunders and Olivier Mathot, and the screen credits named Eurocene boss Marius Lesur as production manager. One imagines that Dietrich and Eurocene had discussed the matter in the period between the German release and the Italian and come to some sort of an accommodation. Unfortunately, since the Italian video release of La Cocolona omits most of the front credits, it's impossible to say whether Eurocene were actually mentioned on the print. They were not credited on the poster. It's also significant that Franco's directorial pseudonym of On La Cocolona was Roland Mar. Sigijnak, a name he used only once before on the 1973 Eurocene production Kiss Me Killer. Franco's pseudonym for the screenwriting credit was Roland Boraquatz, a credit he never used again. It's actually the real name of Bernard Roland, a French-born TV director working in Italy. Coupled with the choice of Gerard Bresson for the camera credit, this gives the Italian release a distinctly French patina. Bressard was a genuine French cinematographer whose name Franco sometimes used instead of his own to disguise the one-man band nature of his productions. He appears extensively on Franco's productions for the Paris-based company Eurocene and Comptoir François uh, de Film Production. 
finally, the film was granted a visa for release in France in January 1977 as Midnight Party. Eurocene released it in June of that year, two years after shooting had ended. One could speculate that Eurocene had problems accessing the negative or were simply having cash flow problems that delayed the release, but it's striking that a film evidently made with their involvement should have been released in Germany and Italy long before it came out in France. One thing we can safely assume, however, is that the root of the problem was Franco's chaotic and reckless approach to the sale of international film rights, a factor that would lead to increasing problems throughout 1975 and into 1976. As a footnote to all these shenanigans, the 1983 Spanish release of Midnight Party, titled Lady Porno, claimed to be a Spanish-Belgian co-production between Titanic Films and Film. Titanic also produced Les Petites Savages, directed by Belgian actor Roger Darton, who was a co-production, which was a co-production with Surprise Surprise, Eurocene, and Film. The latter company turns up on the credits for the Eurocene superproduction Fall of the Eagles 1988 and is thus probably some kind of Eurocene satellite company. The directing credits on Lady Porno goes to Tower Nero, T-A-W-E-R Nero, a.k.a. Julio Perez Tabernero, a Spaniard who had been given credit for more films than he actually directed. Tabernero also used the pseudonym Tower Nero when he acted in the 1980 Spanish sex film Consultorio Sexologirio, a figure around whom much misinformation swirls. Tabernero is rumored to have bought films that had no Spanish input, registered them as Spanish co-productions, pocketed the subsidies, the subsidies, and released them in Spain, which is why Midnight Party, a.k.a. Larry Porno, is listed as a Spanish-Belgian co-production. Tabernero would also lay claim to another Jess Franco film around the same time. You see the cannibals. All right. Let's see. Uh, I'm not going to go through too much of his review because I haven't really watched it yet. But um, um, kind of give the opening here. He writes, "Midnight Party isn't quite as exciting as its production backstory, but it's nevertheless amusing and outrageous. And at times, it runs out of steam and idles along in third gear. There's always a bizarre or amusing sequence just around the corner. It delivers a few shocks, too, and it ricochets up and down the dramatic scale between comedy and brutal crime drama, slipping scenes of rape and torture into what is basically a light-hearted runaround. Yikes. Okay. Um... Uh, it just kind of goes over the story, which I'll go over that in the review when I do it. Um, so yeah, so it's basically, it looks like Minute Party is uh, made up on the spot, and it's just kind of a um, another um, improvisational film. All right, Franco on screen, we'll jump to that. Uh, playing a nasty piece of work called Erratic, always a troublemaker's name in Franco's movies, the director himself serves up the film's most startling dramatic transgression when, after telephoning the police, he turns to the camera and says, Do you believe me to be a secret agent? But that's not my thing at all. My actual profession is being an actor, and after the scene is over, I'll be out of work. All right, Midnight Music. Midnight Party opens with a rinky-dink barroom piano melody first used in Vampiresa's 1930, which would later turn up repeatedly in Franco's 1980s films. Sylvia's rock star lover, Nicholas, played by Alan Petit, sings a song with the stirring title La Vies Una Merende, or Merde. It was created by Petit himself and turns up in two different forms in different versions of Midnight Party as either a boisterous rock number or a depressive blues trudge. It was evidently added to the score of Kiss Me Killer uh, and reappeared in the Incafestible Orgies of Emmanuel, 1982. Generally, though, Midnight Party has only a patchwork score with no real focus or identity of its own, an approach that would come to dominate Franco's films as his budgets became smaller. At times, the music cues actually sabotage or ignore the on-screen cavorting, especially during a dance routine Rome performs to Alain Petit's on-screen rock band. Perversely, Franco replaces the up-tempo sound with a droopy mid-tempo jazz number. Locations uh, we're back at La Grande Motte in the Languedoc region of southern France, as seen in 1974's Lorna, The Exorcist. Oh, yeah, that's a great location. 
Uh, Alan Petit recalls these scenes were also shot at Le Grand du Roy, just a few miles further down the coast. The bar scenes were filmed at a venue called the Colt Saloon, nowadays trading as the Mac Coy Saloon at 285 Rue Helene Bouchoir in or Boucher in Maguel near Montpellier. The material involving Pierre Tellou and Lina Romay was shot at the country home of Eurocene boss Marius Lesseur in the Soci Sur Ecrou, France. This house, the Eurocene studio, essentially, can be seen in pretty in many other Eurocene productions, including Franco, Franco's Eugenie, also known as Eugenie de Sade, 1970. Hot Nights of Linda, 1973, and Kiss Me Killer, 1973. The fact that it also turned up at Franco's Nightmares Come at Night, 1969, which was not a Eurocene production, shows that Franco had the sheer gall to purloin shots for a rival production while shooting in the sewer's own home. Yeah, it sounds like him. Connection. Uh, Romay's direct address to the camera at the start of the film, and Franco's similar scene later, echoes the previous year's La Grande and Reduces, which begins with Romay and Pamela Sanford speaking to the audience. This breaking of the fourth wall, emphasizing the reality behind the fiction, is a natural outgrowth. Emphasizing the reality behind the fiction is a natural outgrowth of the you are here fantasy and porn, which artifice is stripped away to create the illusion of proximity. It becomes more and more prevalent in the video projects of the early 2000s. Uh, French theatrical release Midnight Party played in Paris for two weeks from December 7th, 1977, amassing ticket sales of 6,958, roughly half as many as its twin production, Shining Sex, which also played Paris for a fortnight in 1977. Other versions. All right, so I'm going to wrap up this part here. Much has been made of the film's multi-headed life and various European variant editions, with the suggestion sometimes raised that it turns into either a comedy or a straightforward drama in the dubbing. Well, if there's a straight-ahead dramatic version out there, I, w- I haven't seen it. Uh, all versions I've seen are essentially frivolous comedy dramas with ironic acting, absurd situations, and quippy off-the-cuff acting. For instance, in Lady Porno, the Spanish variant, the sex scene is scored comedically to speed it up barroom piano, whilst a scene in which Sylvia awakens to find Sanders and Scott murdered, then bangs her head as she runs down the stairs, presenting all the extant versions of the film concludes with Romay making comedy cross-eyes to the camera as she falls unconscious. Whichever version you happen to bump into, the film is just a knockabout bit of nonsense with a greater or lesser amount of softcore sex. Although the original French title is La Partouse de Minute, or The Midnight Orgy, uh, the on-screen translation favored by your scene was Midnight Party. In the French provinces, the film played under the variant title Minute, Partois, Eurocene evidently believed that the Parisians would make sense of the English-language title, but asked distributors in the provinces to advertise the film under the direct French translation. Poster artwork for Minute, Minute Partois have, has not surfaced, so it's possible that this title was used in listings and newspaper adverts only. Finally, buyer beware. An American VHS release on the private screenings video label, which claims on the box to be Franco's Midnight Party, is actually the softcore version of Max Picasso's Luxure, 1975. Never seen that, so good. All right, so, yeah, that's inter- pretty interesting. It's the first time I actually read that um, going into this episode. So, the uh, first time I read that is first time here. So, that was that's yeah, that's pretty interesting. Franco always... Uh, did that a lot later on, kind of double dealing and selling international rights. They didn't have uh, the rights to do and stuff. So, but yeah, that's what you do. You kind of like sneak around shots and do your own little side films and do all that. But so, all right. But uh, yeah, that's our uncle Jess for you. You know. So, all right. Um, this is, of course, the Frank Observer podcast, and this was film sixty six. Uh, if you like this podcast, and I hope you do, tell your friends about it. Um, 
share it on any of your favorite uh, social media platforms. Tell people about it. If you tell one or new people, one or two new people, and uh, they get one or two new people out of that, that's like a bunch. So, and that keeps happening, and that would be really awesome. So, yeah, please tell everybody about it. Share it. Uh, please subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, download the episodes. Keep them. And, uh, you know, check them out every time you get a new Franco DVD or Blu-ray. And you'll have all the information to the film and everything to listen to either before or after the film. Um, if you want to get a hold of us, you can at FrancoObserver at Yahoo.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram uh, under the Franco Observer Podcast. Um, also, too, in the new year, 2022, I'm going to open it up to people that want to do episodes. Um, if you want to be a guest reviewer, I'm kind of going in order. So after uh, Shining Sex, which will be after this one, uh, episode 67, um, so with episode 68, we're going to go back to the beginning. So I'm going to do like the first I think it's like 20 Franco films that we haven't done yet. So if you have access to uh, any of those first 20 films or something like that, first 15, 20, and, uh, th- that we haven't done yet, and you want a uh, review of that, get a hold of us at FrancoObserver at Yahoo.com or the Instagram or Facebook page, and we'll work it out. So, yeah, it'd be kind of cool to get new voices from uh, different countries, different states, all over that place because, yeah, share the common love for Uncle Jess and of course that brings us to the praise and memory of Jess Franco bringing the name and films of Jess Franco to new eyes and ears which we do and uh, try to do that weekly even though changes in life and changes in situations I still want to carry the carry the podcast and do the weekly show and uh, open it up to people that want to share the love of Uncle Jess so yeah, um, so after this, uh, you'll listen to the review, and uh, we'll see who the guest reviewer is on this. I'm not sure I'm going to do this one solo, or if I have a guest reviewer coming up that uh trying to see if his schedule works out with mine um, on the Zoom. So it'll be somebody new that you haven't heard from before, so uh, if it works out. If not, I'm going to knock it out and uh, watch this myself, because this looks pretty interesting, and I want to check it out, so... Alrighty, guys. Thanks for listening. And uh, it's your little host, Jason. And uh, hang out and listen to the review of Midnight Party. Hey, buddies. Welcome once again to the Frank Observer Podcast. I am your host, Jason Rudy from Desperate Visions Productions, a Sacramento, California-based filmmaking group. Uh, right now, uh, we're in the middle of editing um, Emmanuel in Sin City and Lady Hyde coming out in 2022. Uh, today, this is, speaking of two twos, this is film 66, uh, episode 66, and we watched the film Midnight Party. And uh, watching this film with me is a um, returning guest, a returning Franco Observer reviewer, Miss Greta Carey. Hello, Greta. How are you today? I'm doing well, Jason. Very nice to talk to you and see you again. So you were on one of the earlier episodes, so it's kind of cool around this time last year. So it's almost like a full circle of time. So it's nice to see that this, everything's still going strong and, and uh, it's good to check in with you again and, and uh, chart the progress. So thanks for joining me today. Yeah, I'm excited to be on uh, on number 66. Yeah, 66. We have one more and we'd be the mark of the beast. So <laughs> I think we're on the right track there. Um so let's see. This is uh, an interesting film. Speaking of Mark of the Beast, it's midnight, which is good, the midnight hour. And this is a midnight party. So uh, on midnight party, I'm going to give the brief synopsis, which upon reading uh, from Flowers of Perversion, the delirious cinema of Jesus Franco, volume two by Stephen Thrower, uh, the synopsis is basically the whole film like boiled down because I kind of went over it briefly before and uh, Basically, everything's shoveled in, so I'm going to go over that and then ask Greta what she thought of the film, and then we'll go from there. All right, uh, synopsis. In a direct-to-camera address, Lena Romay introduces herself as Sylvia and hopes that we'll enjoy watching the film, at least enough to help further her career. We subsequently meet the men in Sylvia's life. Pierre, a feckless musician, 
Alphonse, a private eye, and Nicholas, a, pro- a professed left-wing radical. Invited to a party at the bequest of a sinister couple, Sylvia gets very drunk and finds herself making out with them. Her night of fun turns to horror as she awakes to find the couple dead and a sinister hitman determined to extort information from her under torture if necessary. Sylvia is abducted, then freed, then abducted again until her male friends begin to worry. Alphonse comes searching for Sylvia at the house of Joe DeLagia, a shady individual who works for the Albanian Secret Service and has faked his own death to avoid assassination. Gautier shoots him to save Sylvia. It transpires Gautier is more than just a private eye. He's working for the CIA. After a tangle with the evil Radic leaves Gautier dead, it's up to Nicholas to try and save poor Sylvia's life. Okay. Greta, what did you think of the film? <laughs> it, was a, it was a wild party. And it was definitely um, uh, Franco's anarchistic filmmaking at its best Uh, pure just absurd wild breaking the fourth wall oh yeah madness and boy just if you wanted to see um very intimate views of lena romay from every angle in done lovingly done kind of you know not fan servicey it it's it's all the things you could ever want yeah it's totally um it starts off right in the beginning of her talking to the camera. So she breaks that fourth wall immediately and she knows the views of the audience and how she wants to be with everyone in the audience. And it's really basically Lena almost like talking from the hip. It's kind of Lena boiled down and kind of talking about herself, basically just kind of improving. And, uh, and the last film, uh, Justine that she did just before that, um, she shaves down. So Lena was always had a nice fur badge, and now this last film, she shaved all the way down. So this film and Into Shining Sex is Alina's three groomed period film. So, yeah, if you ever want to see Lena up close and shaved. In this film, too, you see, like, really close-ups of her uh, razor bumps. And the, the camera gets really close to her. So you see a lot of a lot of Lena's skin and everything. So It's downright gynecological. Yeah, exactly. I have no complaints about that. But it is no. really, like... He particularly focuses on that area. I mean, you see all of yeah. Lena, but it is like if you if you are interested, you will you will know her so intimately. Yeah, she is definitely one of the actresses that I, I feel like I really know because even <laughs> films later on, he goes even closer where he almost enters her with the camera and and that's that's about as far as I think he could go. So but uh, yeah, it's funny that those this film bookends those two scenes. It kind of starts with that and it ends. I'm sure it's just that one section he filmed and then he just put half of it here and a section here and section there. But it's just kind of like, I think that's his way too of trying to put all this together because I'm not sure how much of this was written beforehand. Um, A lot of his films, the actors have gone on to say that he would just give them pages of notes. And this is one film that it definitely looked like uh, it was kind of a, makeup as you go along because it was on the second half of shining sex and this film he kind of shot on the sly back into those budgets and tried to release it and there's some stuff i talk about in the beginning of the whole history of how this film was made but it's basically a lot of sneaking things in and stuff like the shot of the three women nude uh laying there lounging of um like it's monica swim and uh christina ferreira and one other gal that was just from Lorna the Exorcist shoot, I think, or something. And and she'd talked about that of just he just happened they, they were just there sunbathing on their own and he asked, Hey, may I photograph you? And they all said yes. And he photographed them and then just put that footage away and then just used it for this film, just for some meaningless scene, you know, to try to piece things together. So but uh, yeah, yeah, it's really, really interesting. That hotel room was a was reused also like the set. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, there uh yeah, this is uh trying to remember. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The the scenes where uh let me see which ones I kinda so watched a couple of nights ago. Um the scenes uh where she's with which person are 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 you thinking of? I think oh I'm trying to think like it, the um set just looks so similar to that whole sort of string of films. I think it was filmed in, in essentially the same 
hotel room. Yeah, there's the cool like that. Uh, I'd made a mention that in my notes. I was going to talk about of like the cool pyramid buildings, the kind of mm-hmm. um, apartment buildings that were built up the all the circular windows and that right off the beach. Yeah, that area is really cool. They use that in these three films, and then in um, Lorna, I believe as well, because that was one of the first when they when they was being built uh, that area. Um, so, okay, I'm going to go over, uh, my notes and then that's going to kind of hit on the Franco observer list of stuff that I always kind of look for. Um, this film kind of starts off with, um, red lighting and there's always a, a red light, usually in a Franco film It starts off right on her face. Um, and, uh, writhing on the bed of her, um, 50 seconds in, you get the very first scene of, um, nudity. And of course it's Lena, as we talk about, she rolls around and usually, Writhing Lena has to be almost a new category because there's always a film where she writhes around on the bed just for whatever reason. Either she's playing with herself or just writhing and moving and talking or whatever, you know. It's almost like a standard, you know, checklist of of things you got to do for Lena. Um, And it's funny on this film, in the credits, uh, Jess Franco has a lot of credits. He's, as an actor, he's billed as um, Jess Frank. And then uh, as director, he's billed as James Gardner, not from the Rockford Files, but a different James Gardner. And then uh, they have him as um, uh, the co-actor, um, David Kuhn, which is one of his aliases that he uses quite a bit, K-H-U-N-E. Uh, he uses that on quite a few films. And I saw that on here as a co-actor. So he's just padding the credits with imaginary people. Um, and then along, he's the writer as well as um, Nadine Fouchart. Uh, he's used that credit about three or four times. And uh, yeah, so he has all these credits in the beginning. I started laughing. I had to pause and write them down because like, oh, there's another one that he's used before. Um, and you have right in the beginning, uh, you have um, Body of Water, Sailboat, and Boats um, for the Red Light Club. Um, and then you have uh, the Red Light again uh, with, you have this audience of scenes where there's a band. And it's funny because the band's playing rock but they're playing jazz music over their, over their playing. And they're like rocking out. And you see a guy playing a saxophone, but it's like a jazz sax over the rock jazz playing, you know, which was kind of funny. I thought, you know, the saxophone, how that didn't match up. Um, and he uses his famous, he'll point the camera at one thing and show like the band. Then he'll film somewhere else with people just sitting at an audience at like another building or something, just sitting there watching. And then they're in the same room together as the thing. And he, and, I, and he'll, and he'll light a person's face red or something. If they have the red light on the audience or on the band. And he did that a few times because in Justine, which uses footage from midnight party, shining six and uh, Julieta, they use some of the same footage of the band playing in that as well in that. Um, cause I'd watched that first. Um, um, yeah. And you see some of that, but, but that band's playing, but they use the song for Emmanuel in America, the rock band sing of that over that footage of them playing. So that band plays that one footage that one band is playing like three different songs now. So that's pretty goofy. You know? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I enjoyed, I enjoyed the, uh, the impromptu jazz music. It was definitely like, Took took me off uh, off guard. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely funny because you can just tell it doesn't match, and then you start looking for the things that don't fit, you know. Um, and and he's done this before because in the book it said like one of the la- earlier films was one where he first started pointing the camera at. Well, I guess it's Lena, but he did it before with um, um, uh, Vampires Lesbos and A Nightmare Comes at Night, and that with a, a soledad of like her stripping and stuff where she'll be at a location. And then you see the audience where they're not in the same area. So, but he does that a lot in this film. Lena has like quite a few uh, strip sequences where she's against the wall. Um, and the shower sequence is almost like her doing strip tease with the shower nozzle where she gets kidnapped that second or third time. And then another one where she's dancing, uh, doing a different strip tease. Um, uh, yeah, and then you have the band playing. Oh, yeah, so they're muted. Um, then she has um, Billy Chain in that scene along with her a magic tongue. She always likes to flick her tongue at the camera a few times or with a person. I always try to catch that, you know. It's like her little thing. And she even does it and kind of like laughs at the camera when she's doing it. It's like she knows what they want to see, you know. Um, 
yeah, she talks to the camera quite a bit. There's some good mirror shots I caught during the sequence. Um, and uh, I liked the trumpet and jazz with the threesome scene. I thought was was pretty cool. This is real yeah. swanky, you know. Um, up to that point, what have you thought about the film? Like, like the first half before Jess Franco comes in as the whole like torturer guy. Yeah, I think um, she is just always such a delight to watch. She just, uh, she's her presence on camera is is so enthusiastic, and yeah. her sexuality and the way she seduces the audience, uh, and the way that he brings it out on camera are it's it's just it's really exquisite to watch. Like she, yeah. I, I always enjoy her, and that um, that threesome scene, she's just especially ecstatic and and like just engaged and having so much fun like you can't help but enjoy watching her on on screen yeah no she that's what uh, earlier episodes i talked about how like being a director like to have her as an actress is like what you pray for in life like she's the torsatana she's the you know yeah, whatever. I mean, she's the fire plug. She's the she's the it factor, and and to have something like that that just you could build films around over and over again, and just deliver, 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 and just you know, especially to come in after uh, Soul Dodd's death and the and the whole wandering of the year, trying to connect with somebody and different people and working through different actresses, and then just she captures that thing, and then you start seeing her building up, building up, and then she takes over, and then it's Lena's show after that, and that's really really cool to watch, you know. Yeah, she just draws you in. Yeah. And she, like, yeah, I, I love all of her little, um, she definitely has those little sort of signature movements and like ways she looks at the camera, yeah. her expression. And it's, yeah, it's, it's delightful. Yeah, she's so loving and giving and she's so pure and everything. And she has no, she doesn't even think, I mean, the word shame doesn't even come into her vocabulary, the thought mm-hmm. of it. And just, she just, what, you know, life is just how you should be and to do this and that. And, and, like like in films, she'll run barefoot through rocks, jumping bodies of water. Who knows what's in those bodies of water? She'll climb walls nude for you, jump out of trees, and be in bed with men, women, young, old, whoever. She'll don't she doesn't care. Everybody to her is sexy, and she just goes, 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 and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So, yeah, she, and it's a great she's... juxtaposition because there is that um, like later in the film, you you see a real contrast to that sort of free loving hippie communist, right? thing and and it's like it's just it, it's brilliant because she just does it so so perfectly yeah and it's funny so like up to here you see like she has that threesome and she wakes up and then uh they're supposedly dead and when i was watching it like part way through and then i was like wondering these people coming in and that i had this vibe for like 10 minutes of like that movie of uh, the game um for, I don't know, for, for some reason like it was like you didn't know what was happening like who was trying to trick who or whatever but then but then that quickly went away but but uh but yeah just all these different players and you didn't know who was who was playing who and everything and and uh it would be really serious but then there was these very comical things that i would laugh about like just franco was an exaggerated hitman and his wooden leg almost sounded like a dial of a timer that would click every time he would walk. I was like trying to think of the sound. It was almost like click, click, click every time he'd walk. And you weren't sure if he was maniacal or, or, or if he was funny, but the stuff he was yelling out to like cut her feet and all this stuff, do it again, do it again. And all that like, slap her and all that stuff. You're like, Oh, maybe this isn't going to end well. You know, it kind of like made you wonder for a second, you know, there are some really great black comedy elements to yeah. this. He really infuses a lot of um, of kind of just different cinematic elements, but the black comedy is especially black. Like you really have to, you really have to be ready for it. Yeah, and then as you watch again, it goes through. You realize that like Lena just kind of digs it. And it's just like part of this whole thing, and who knows if like this whole thing was just set up just just to test her to have her do another adventure, or if these people were really trying to kill her, or I mean, you just didn't know whatever way it was supposed to go, you know. But the guy that was the Albanian guy, I thought was pretty creepy. I'd never first seen him before in a Jess Franco film. He had the real cool little mustache and everything, you know. He was he he, he was pretty good. And then of course you see him pop up again. And everybody's all shocked by it. Um, another thing too, the sound effect. The thing that I was really laughing at was um, when Lena escapes uh, going down the spiral staircase. Another thing in Franco films. Um, Franco's calling out for his pussy, his pussy cat, 
and they dub in this cat sound over Lena making a fake cat sound and it's like dubbed in cat. I laughed so hard. It was so stupid. Little things like that were just so sweet and funny. Like we're talking about the black comedy and that was just like the three stooges or little rascals comedy or just something, something really goofy. And I laughed so hard at that. It was just so out of the blue. It just take you out of all the stuff you've seen before with the hardcore stuff. And then that is just totally left field, you know? Yeah, because it's, I mean, it it's an intense torture scene. Like, it's, yeah, it's yeah. cigarettes, it's, like, you know, pulling off toenail. Like, it's, yeah, it's a sawing really her feet with that thing. Yeah, yeah. So to get that, like, comic relief after something that is, you know, is pretty, like, pretty traumatic to this character that you've been introduced to, that who's this freewheeling, like, fun-loving person, yeah. it, it really... um yeah, it, it takes sort of, sort of like that. It's like that pressure pressure release valve off of that scene. Yeah, it's totally, totally goofy. I just like was just laughing because she was like, "Okay, know what's going to happen next?" And it's just as it goes through. Um, and then they had the um, um, wind going through the trees right before that during that sequence. Um, then you have uh, Lena's shower scene where she's kind of like in the shower and she's like doing this little. Even when she's taking a shower, she's playing to the camera. She has the shower nozzle and she's kind of like dancing and flicking her tongue and playing with her boobs and doing all this stuff for the camera. And then she gets kidnapped again. And, uh, and then after that, I was laughing because there's this abrupt cut, extreme close up of Lena's vagina where like she talks about something happening to her. And it's like a shot of her on her knees uh, with her ass facing the camera. It's just right there. It's just right for no reason. Like that's an interesting cut just to that. <laughs> no lead up, just right there. <laughs> I was like, yes. and Frank always has one or two funny cuts in all of his films that I'll catch. And that one just, just tickled me to no extreme for some reason. Um, and then um, let's see what else I catch. Um, oh, yeah. And also it uh, begins in the same. Yeah, I said before, it basically begins and ends the same way. Lean on the bed. And there is an end credit that says the end. So um, he definitely had that in the film, which a lot of times he doesn't have this. Um also, too, uh, let's see, I caught, there's no chained up people really in this. Um, there was, uh, we saw jazz music, excessive zooms. See, what Franco does is with Lena, he gets so excited, he'll like zoom in way too close and get out of focus. And then he'll stay out of focus. And then he'll like try to zoom back. But then it's like everything moves out of focus on him. And it's funny. He won't do a second take. Instead of zooming in as far as he should be, getting to focus and then setting it, he just, I don't know. He just doesn't pull his focus right, but it's it's funny. But it's cute because he's so obsessed with Lena and seeing how far and he can get that camera, which, as I've read, it's almost like, and he's described it too in interviews of like, the zoom is almost like leaning forward. Like if, like if somebody's bending over, you want to lean forward to see if you can see any closer. And that's his way of zooming in, almost like a lean forward, you know? I was like, okay, that's kind of interesting because he likes to watch and peer. And, and so with that thought of the, the zooming in and out of, of, of that then it, it totally makes sense to me you know but but yeah it's yeah and i can i mean you've got a perfect subject for that oh yeah 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 and, and it's funny too watching these films how how they are in this way because she's still with uh, ramon ardid and frank was still with his wife or yeah his second or yeah his wife and uh with her stepdaughter and everything so yeah so lena and him haven't got together yet but they're moving in that direction right around this time so it's pretty interesting so yeah and then the next film is uh shining sex right after that and that's another step up so but, yeah with a lot of the same cast members I yeah like uh julietta and midnight party and shining sex he kind of made those three back to back kind of like in the same two month span i think right around there and uh because he shot on the back end of uh shining sex and then Julietta was shot and then abandoned. And then Joe D'Amato took the, some of that footage and then took Midnight Party and Shining Sex and edited those two parts of those two films with about 40 minutes of the original movie. So but that original movie is like one of the lost Franco films. It played the cinemas and stuff and during the run, but it never came out on video. It never, it was already cut into another movie before video kind of, had its thing so but maybe one day i'll come out i'm sure they'll find it somewhere sitting or something but but so yeah i mean to me this is like a goofy film and it's it's something to watch it's it's fun it's 
I don't know. It, there's not a lot to it, but it's very anarchist, like you're saying, and it's very fun and freewheeling. And it's a showcase for Lena and, and just, you know, them goofing around, running around, having fun, shooting the area, shooting the women, and just find an excuse to make a movie, you know. And I really can't fault that. So, you know. I love, um, I, I also love that her character has this strength. She's the money earner. Oh, yeah. There's, uh, there's a scene, uh, you know, when her, uh, she interacts with her husband and it's very clear she has the upper hand. Like she is the one, you know, she's the breadwinner. She's the, like the dominant figure in, in the controlling figure in this relationship, which I think is really, you know, pretty cool for the time. Yeah. Um, and there's also that juxtaposition of like, um, you know, the government and the elites and this sort of, you know, adult uh, contrasted with the, you know, the, the commie boyfriend that's the rock and roll guy and this, this sort of like barefoot hippie free sex aesthetic. And it's, it's a, you know, it, there's, um, there's just some kind of nice balancing of those, of those elements. Cause it is not the most, um, it's not the most cohesive film, but it does have these qualities that you can, that you that's can pick point. apart. Yeah. Good, good call. I was, I forgot about that part because like he calls the older guy, he goes, you're just a capitalist. I knew you're a capitalist because he didn't want to save Lena. But then you figure out that that guy was going to save Lena and all that other stuff. But mm-hmm. and it's cool too. Yeah, we're talking about everybody's uh, sexual attitudes and that because like the guy that her husband or boyfriend or whatever knows that she's going out making money, but he's taking her money for his gambling debts and other things he says that he needs. And he's fine with what she does. And she says, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going out with this person, that person and this. And I'm going to try to goof around with this person but i do like this person and, and it's totally set out there and so there's they're not hiding anything they're totally open with, with what they're doing and then she's going through and doing these things and it's like part of her routine and she has a whole setup and it just keeps circling back so it's like everybody's oh there she is and they just think it's just that's just how it is so it's it is very very you know loose and fun and and you know really a cool attitude to have where different directors or different writers would put different stamps on it or make you feel bad for certain things or put trappings on things and mm-hmm. I don't know, just tur- turn it into a different vehicle. And I'm glad Franco didn't put those tires on that vehicle. So, you know, that's cool. And always great outfits. When, when Lena is clothed, yeah. it, always, it always looks really cool. <laughs> yeah. And Alina always has cool stuff. And this, uh, I don't know if this one, she has that, but she has this cool, like, rainbow kind of spaghetti dress she wears that's in quite a few films it's in the last film and might be in the next film shining sex and she wears it in about eight or ten different films around this period that uh was a film was that they carry around a case and then her long black boots she wears quite a bit that sold out would wear too and then she has that uh black kind of chiffon uh nightgown she wears quite a bit in quite a few films so yeah and then of course there's that blonde wig that gets passed around mm-hmm. that Monica Swim wears in films mm-hmm. and and um uh Pamela Stanford wears and then you know I guess, oh there's that wig in this film or that film. So it's funny. It's one thing about these Franco films is <laughs> connecting them and seeing the props and the things used again and nightstands and, and clothes and wigs and all that good stuff. So it's a nice it's a nice thrill line into the um Franco universe, you know. Which is always nice. So but so yeah, so I don't know. Um this film's like a gray market film. It's not out really on DVD. You can get it through a lot of DVD sellers. Um, I would think Severn would probably put it out. It's kind of a gray area because like it came out, you know, uh, right before Shining Sex. But since the distribution rights, uh, I think Eurocene bought it. And then Eurocene puts out some of their stuff through Redemption, you know, so I don't know if who has the rights to it. So, but I don't know right now it's just a public domain film, but it'd be cool if they put it on Blu-ray. I mean, you know, it's, it's right in that same period of the Franco stuff and Lena's good in it. And it's got a lot of interesting stuff. Um, yeah. I don't know. Uh, not really too much else to say in it. Uh, yeah. (laughs) It's definitely, definitely fun to watch. Um, but yeah, so, um, the next film they do is Shining Six, and I have actually yet to watch that, so I'm looking forward to watching it. So I'll, uh, I've been waiting to watch these until I review them, so they're all new to me, and other people I know have seen them like 20 times, but it's something I'm going to experience. I, I kind of already know about it, but I'm looking forward to that, so that should be fun. And uh, you're going to join me on that one coming up, correct? 
I am, and I haven't watched it either, so I am also excited. Hey, all right, also awesome. awesome, very cool, very cool, good. That's good. They have two two fresh or two fresh sets of eyes watching it, so that's awesome. Um, cool. Well, um, if you want to find the Franco Observer uh, site, you can find us on Facebook or on Instagram under the Franco Observer podcast. You can get a hold of us at uh, Franco Observer at yahoo.com. Uh, also, you can download the shows. Uh, please subscribe and download. We're on all your favorite uh, platforms and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, uh, check us out and keep the numbers going and keep listening. And uh, we're one year down and probably about another year and change to go. And then we'll probably wrap this up. So because we're at like 66 right now and there's about 140. So, yeah, about another year I'll be doing this or so. So we'll see how it goes. But. Uh, yeah, and then unless they find more lost Franco films, then there'll be more episodes after that. So, alrighty, well, this wraps it up again for the Franco Observer podcast. Thanks for listening to uh, episode sixty-six, Midnight Party, uh, with guest um, reviewer Miss Greta Carey and uh, your host Jason Rudy. Signing off, saying good night. <laughs>